So we'll start the way we normally start, from Cafe. This is a live taping of the Cafe Insider. I'm Preet Bharara. And I'm Ann Milgram. Hi, Ann. How are you? Good. It's nice to see you, Preet. It's nice to see you. You have a slightly different setup from last time. So do you. The boss is gone. The boss is gone. I have to say, I know that the room raider likes your um, likes your room better I now. I got an 8 out of 10 for this. You know what? For me, it's not it's not right without the boss, without Bruce Springsteen. You know, can we make an announcement to the folks? Um, you may and not... by the way, I would get a negative eight. <laughs> no, no, no. It looks, looks delightful. Um, you know, we had one million signups for this. <laughs> Did you know that? We have a huge overflow room. People get that. Is that, is that, is that still funny? Is it not funny? <laughs> it's still funny. It's still funny. So I don't know if my parents are on or not. So if they're not on, we can, I guess, curse more than we normally do. <laughs> can we? I don't, I don't know. Um, totally. So what's going on with you? Uh, what's what going on with me? We were, supposed um, to, we were supposed to only be doing this once this week, but we had the crazy news, which we'll get to in a moment. We did. Yeah. We, uh, we, I would wait, say wait, that can there I was something? Wa- can I show you something? Watch yeah. this. <laughs> that two is handed, what's your Two-handed drink. drink. What, what's in there? <laughs> what's in there? What's, yeah. What's in there is the same as was last time, for those of you who didn't join us last time. Um, vodka tonic. I don't think that's right, Preet. I don't want to pull out my uh, memory on you, but I'm pretty sure you were drinking red wine in no, a no, cafe no. cup. I also have that. In case it's necessary. In case of emergency, I also have, I also you got have me. this. <laughs> yeah, last time, I, do you remember what I was drinking last time? I, I don't. It was a dark and stormy, like oh, my right. mood that day. I made a, but today I made I'm a drinking... very bad Stormy Daniels joke. Right. Oh, that's right. I'm right. drinking a gin and tonic today. Gin and tonic. I don't. I don't like. I don't like gin so much. Sorry to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> that's your. That's your reaction. That's your. More for me, More for the rest of us. You know, I didn't. I didn't use to like gin. Normally, folks, my we grandma. banter better than this. Um, you know, <laughs> I think we've been in quarantine for too long. Oh, so ha- so one reason we had this, by the way, at seven thirty, now seven forty nine, is that there was this Biden and Obama fundraiser that lots and lots of people said they wanted to participate in. And apparently, we can't really compete with them. <laughs> so we decided to push our thing a little bit, which I think has made sense. Okay, so should we talk about a little bit of news? Yeah. <clears throat> Something we can anticipate tomorrow. There is a hearing in the House Judiciary Committee about the independence of the Justice Department, which is something we're really going to talk about when we get to Bill Barr and my successor, Jeff Berman. The, US, the former U.S. attorney from the Southern District of New York. But tomorrow, there will be testimony from a few people, uh, one of whom is a guy by the name of Aaron Zelensky, who remains an assistant U.S. attorney. So he's still a, an employee of the Justice Department, who was on the Roger Stone case, and will testify, because we have an advanced copy of the statement, and it's been uh, disseminated, where he says, among other things, that Roger Stone was treated in a special way because of his relationship to the president. That's kind of astonishing. What do you make of that? I think it is astonishing. And he said that he was told that by his supervisors of the U.S. Attorney's Office. What, what I think is really important about it is, I think, you know, you and I were putting together the pieces, and I think all of us have been reading the articles and, and watching the news and sort of putting together the pieces, that it appeared pretty clearly that there was political influence being exerted. But there's something totally different about having somebody walk in to a or zoom in to a house hearing meeting, raise their right hand, swear swear an oath 
to tell the truth and to say that. And it just, it's sort of, I, I think it just, it, it's sort of, we, we kind of knew it, but I think it's really different when you hear someone like Aaron Zielinski, who's a very accomplished, well-respected prosecutor, walk in and say it. Um, Should I read from, your, from this? Part of the statement says, he writes in his statement, what I heard repeatedly was that Roger Stone was being treated differently from any other defendant because of his relationship to the president. He also says, or will say, I was also told that the acting U.S. attorney was giving Stone such unprecedentedly favorable treatment because he was, quote, afraid of the president. So that's pretty damning stuff. My question that I that I will mention here and that I posted on Twitter is it's kind of a very passive voice. Like, I heard, I was told, who told you? Um, how did you hear? And I don't know if that's a function of not wanting to say now in advance. And w- will he be prepared to answer those questions tomorrow? I guess it's his immediate supervisors. It's, ki- it's kind of weird, right, the passive voice? It's weird. And it does feel like... Um Maybe part of it is that tomorrow he'll be under oath and compelled to answer those questions. And today, um, and even in the statement, it feels sort of more voluntary. Um, And maybe he just doesn't want to name those names. Um, Or maybe he hadn't gotten a chance to talk to them yet. But obviously, I think he's going to be asked those questions. And frankly, I think he needs to answer those questions of who told him. Otherwise, I think it, it would lack some credibility, right? I mean... You know, you, you can't basically walk in and just say, people told me. You have to say, like, people I was in a saying, meeting. Here's, you have to say, I was in a meeting, we were discussing it, and here are the three people that were in the meeting. Right. It's like what Trump says. Like, people, people are saying, sir, you are excellent. Somebody asked the question that I think is very important. Jessica wants to know, um, how do you get your kid to bed at 730? Oh, I don't. <laughs> I mean, pre-pandemic, we were like trying for seven thirty and getting to eight o'clock. But do you put now, NyQuil, do you put Nyquil in the in the milk? <laughs> no, no. But now we are more like eight thirty, and then every once in a while, you know, he'll peek his head out later. In fact, we were watching the last Star Wars movie recently, and all of a sudden, it was like an hour after he'd gone to bed, and he heard the music, and all of a sudden, you see like this, you know, these little this, these little feet pitter patter come out and say, "Is that Star Wars?" Uh, um, let me let me ask you a question, Pete. Yeah. Um, I'm ready. For, I, am, so, I am ready for your question. So you're running the hearing in the House. Aaron Zelensky comes in tomorrow and basically says, "I did a meeting with these three people. What do you do next?" I, I, did you issue? <laughs> I guess I wasn't ready for your question. <laughs> that was not meant to be a short question. Would you I? you would subpoena those three? Oh, right? no, like yeah, no, my yes. three supervisors. I just yeah. want to sort of play but out you, a little got, where what, I think this could go. I do have I do have a slight concern. Can I mention yeah. it? He is a current member of the Justice Department. It is a very odd and extraordinary thing for a sitting member of the Justice Department who's not the Attorney General or the Deputy Attorney General or a politically appointed person to be testifying. And it seems like the Justice Department is fine with it. And, you know, I I have a kind of a mild cynical theory, which is maybe they're fine with it because they think he's not going to be a good witness. I'm just speculating. He might not be a good witness and the Republicans are going to be able to successfully and effectively attack him as, you know, a biased Mueller prosecutor. I don't know. Don't you think it's weird that there has not been more of a fight to prevent Aaron Zelensky from testifying? There's something odd about that. Yeah. I mean, look, I it's sort of it, it. I agree with you. I also think there's a real question of, like, is he technically a whistleblower because he is a current employee? Um, can he be retaliated against? This is obviously high profile enough that I think it'd be foolish for them to take action against him or fire him. But, you know, it's it's not clear exactly how this plays out. Um, and again, I think 
it, what's interesting to me is like he's point one. The question is, you know, he's going to raise all these issues if he answers those questions as to who said what. Then, you know, if you're running the investigation, you would have the people that he says told him it's because the president is friends with Roger Stone. All those people come in and testify, and then they give you other names. And eventually, you know, you could potentially work to um, senior people at DOJ or in the White House. And that's where it gets even more interesting. So, I, you know, tune in. We'll talk about it. I think we have a lot to say. Someone asked the question, what's up with the vodka and gin choice and why no lime? That's actually, that's a great question. <laughs> I have lime in mine. I just didn't put my, uh, I just didn't put. My lime. So ordinarily, I would have. A, I don't have lime today. We just don't have lime in the house today. But but I will put the lime. I'll squeeze the lime in, and then I'll mix the drink. And I'll take the lime out because I don't like. I don't like the lime to be sitting in the drink. It seems I don't know. Seems 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 wrong. wrong. To me. <laughs> All right. So as we just, I, I don't know, if folks uh, listened to our emergency insider podcast yesterday. I think a lot of people did. Uh, we were going to take the, the uh, kind of a light week after taking last week off. But obviously, a lot of things happened. Um, I, I took to Twitter in the most uh, prolific way <laughs> that I have, I think, in three years, because yeah. I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about what happened. And it was very familiar to me, as I said, deja vu all over again. I wrote not better in the New York Times that some of you may have seen. So I think we were pretty exhaustive about it. A couple of new things happened with respect to the firing of Jeff Berman. One is there was a report in the Wall Street Journal, I think also matched by CNN mm -hmm. and some other outlets, that one of the things that made people at the Justice Department angry at Jeff Berman, the sitting U.S. attorney last week, was they wanted him to sign on to a letter that also would be signed on to by the chief of the Civil Rights Division, basically calling Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, on the carpet for taking one view when Orthodox uh, members of the Jewish community were congregating and in close proximity and having and a different churches. view at, and churches. So when it was a religious, <clears throat> when it was a religious gathering, uh, and being very tough about it, and having a much more forgiving view, when there were all these protests in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd, and he, they want, according to the reporting, they wanted Jeff Berman to sign on to that letter, and whatever you think of the merits of that standard, if it was a double standard or not, we can, you know, people can have their view of that. Jeff Berman, according to the reporting, thought it was a political stunt, and wouldn't have signed on to it. If I had been the U.S. attorney, whatever view I had personally about whether or not that was a good policy and whether or not I approved of what the mayor was saying about it, I also would not have signed that letter. Would you have? No. Yeah. And I, I think that this is maybe lost a little bit um, in the media conversation, but those it, the letter felt extremely political to me. And U.S. attorneys bring cases. They generally don't speak outside of a case. Um, and so, you know, Bill Barr could sue on civil grounds. The Department of Justice could bring, if they thought that they had a, a legal action, they could bring a case. But for the sitting U.S. attorney to sort of get in a fight with the mayor in the city, um, and just sort of throw a political elbow uh, just felt to me, and it wasn't. It, it doesn't appear to have been more than just saying a, you're doing a terrible job and creating a double standard. And look, if Bill Barr feels that way, bring a lawsuit, um, litigate under. You know, is there discrimination under the application of the laws? And religious organizations are being, being treated differently. Um, you know, that's how you handle it. But I would never have signed that letter either. Yeah, and look, and you know, I don't. I have no idea if that was a thing that caused Bill Barr to say this guy is not a team player. And they otherwise had plans to get rid of him. But doesn't it feel like it was just one of many things? I mean, I, I sort of it feels weird for that letter alone to have been it, but it feels like it's if a there's pretext. all these other things. Look, right. Th this is 
this is, the, in my view, this is a pretextual presidency, right? On matter after matter after matter. And we're going to get to the Supreme Court cases, hopefully, if we don't run out of time, where the Supreme Court itself called out this administration for operating on pretext. But clearly, President Trump doesn't like the Southern District, doesn't like how Jeff Berman has been running the show, doesn't like the fact that he recused himself from the Michael Cohen case. There's all these things that he hates that SDNY is doing. And then they come up with this cockamamie story that, you know, a smart lawyer, but an unqualified person for this position, who's a chairman of the SEC, he wanted to move back to New York, and we thought we'd, you know, give him an opportunity. So we're going to fire the guy who's doing a good job and is investigating all my people and stuff. And that's our innocent reason. By the way, it's my understanding that Jay Jay Clayton, the, the chair of the SEC, because of the pandemic, has mostly been working from New York already for months. And no one is going back to D.C. And he can remain working in New York for months, probably up in, until the, the election. So it's a made-up story. It's a pretext. And, you know, I don't know if this is going to make a difference. And some, I've seen, I'm seeing some people note in the chat, is, is this going to make a difference? Is, are people going to care? Is it going to matter? You know, I don't know. Um, I think that in common, I mean, don't you think that in combination with the stuff that's happening tomorrow with Stone, does any of that make a difference or not? You know, I mean, the record to me is is pretty thorough right now that Barr has been incredibly political and has, has really harmed, I think, in my view, the department. I guess the question is, you know, you and I have talked about this. There's an attorney general has not been impeached. And so usually if there's something wrong, they, they could be fired or the president could switch attorney general attorneys general and ask for their letter of resignation. But the idea of actually doing an impeachment even Congressman Nadler said they just don't have the votes. And so it's exactly the same as impeaching the president, with the one exception that the vice president would actually preside over a Senate trial. So it's just hard to imagine us going through that. So I think the question is, number one, does the president lose faith in Barr before the election? And number two, is there sufficient political pressure from the House hearings? And I think that that's a really important piece of this, that that the sort of sentiment becomes Barr has gone so far in this. But it's really tough. I mean, I think what this drives home for me and probably for you is the attorney general is incredibly powerful. And I think we've it's like the presidency. We've relied on norms and those norms, you know, they've busted all of them. And so I think the next AG is going to have just an immense job to clean up the mess that's now been created. You know, the other weird thing is how much lying Bill Barr has done, which to me, you, you can't do generally in public service and you can't do as the AG. As I've said, and as other people have commented, he lied when he said Jeff Berman was stepping down in that first statement that he put out at like 9.16 or something on Friday evening. But it also appears from some report, and I haven't seen it confirmed elsewhere, you and I had to talk about this offline, the New Jersey U.S. attorney who was initially based on the Friday evening statement was going to both oversee the U.S. Attorney's Office in New Jersey and then also oversee the SDNY in an acting capacity. Craig Carpenito, you wonder why would he why would he take on such a duty if it meant, you know, sort of stepping in the shoes of Jeff Berman, who he now says wasn't leaving voluntarily. And Carpenito, according to the report, had a conference call with all of his AUSAs, and we can, you know, wonder whether or not that was staged or not. But he says, at least through this report, my understanding was Jeff Berman was leaving voluntarily, so I was prepared to step into the void. And it's it's my theory that it may be that, that Carpenito was ambitious, and it may be that Jay Clayton was ambitious and overreaching, but that, that Bill Barr made it seem to them that there was a natural voluntary vacancy, and would you want to fill it? Isn't that a bad thing to do? 
Yeah, I'm just skeptical you can disagree of, with of me. One Piece. We're yeah, allowed. well, I'm You're just allowed. skeptical of this. I mean, if if I were sitting in Craig Carpenito's seat and somebody called me and said, "We want you to run the Southern District," the first answer would be, "That's just too big of a job for for somebody to do well to do both jobs." The second thing would be if Berman was leaving voluntarily, I probably would have called Berman, or I would have had some other yes. judgment 100%. on this. And so, you know, the, my my issue is not look, Carpenito. I I take him at his word that. He didn't know, but it's kind of like his judgment and not figuring it out or making that call and figuring it out. It feels, like be, before it feels you go out with me. somebody, yeah. I'm drinking, so maybe this is not an appropriate. This is taking a turn. <laughs> I was going to say before you go before you go out with somebody who used to go out with your best friend. Maybe you call your best friend. And you're just like, you know, is, is that? Should I stop now? <laughs> I, I, <laughs> <laughs> it just. I, I think your point is a very good one. Yeah, and, and actually, you call just the guy. In, you say, and, you say, hey, why, Jeff, why are you leaving? I've been asked yes. to do this. Do you have a problem with it? How is it going to go and over? It's insane that you don't do that, right? Yeah. And Roberta just asked a very good question from one of our listeners. Wh- wouldn't you ask, why isn't the deputy stepping in? Right. Right. Because that is by far yes. and away Roberta, the normal Roberta, very course. smart. Very smart question. Yes. So I personally <laughs> believe like there's something that smells very bad about this. And it's just very, you know, it's bizarre. Um, and I think one of the things I, I struggle with a little bit, and I don't know how you feel about this, Preet, but f- for you and I, it's just, it's incredibly bizarre. But for the average American citizen, like they don't understand how these things usually work. And it takes a fair amount of effort to understand just how strange and problematic this all is. Yeah, look, it's a little sad for me. You know, at the end of the op-ed in the New York Times, I said I've talked to a lot of people, you know, the... The whole alumni network, and not just the alumni network, but people in the office are abuzz. And it's very dispiriting. And it's very it's very demoralizing. That like, you know, just like that, for a pretextual reason, you switch someone out. It's not good for... And, and by the way, at the end of the day, you know, because Bill Barr had to retreat from imposing Carpenito, and it is the deputy, you know, Audrey Strauss, who's very well regarded and has been around for a long time. And someone once, someone commented recently, I don't know who it was, on social media saying... You know, they bungled this so bad. Even they're trying to do a, you know, a drug deal or a domestic political errand, as I refer to it, invoking the famous words of Fiona Hill from the impeachment. What did they get at the end of the day? They had Jeff Berman, a registered Republican, a donor to to Donald Trump, a conservative. And now what they have is a registered Democrat, Audrey Strauss, who has donated to Democratic candidates. Not that that should matter. And I don't think that does matter. It didn't matter with Jeff. It won't matter with Audrey. But from the, pers- the the political perspective, it shouldn't the, matter. But yeah, the they Trump might administration, be politicized. What did they get by doing this Friday night massacre, even on their own terms, for, even from their perspective? They got nothing. So what are they doing? Yeah. Well, I I think they did get nothing, but I want to be cautious about saying that. I mean, I think they ended up far worse than they expected because, again, Berman was a Republican political appoint appointee. He was a Giuliani law partner, and Audrey Strauss is a career prosecutor. But I still think it sends a chill, a little bit of a chill through the office that they're out, that Barr and Maine Justice is out there trying to do this. And so I think that, like, yes, that this round was not won by Bill Barr, but I still think that even just the message that his attempt sends, it's really problematic. And I think, you know, look, hopefully the lawyers in the Southern District double down on their work, and I think they will, but it's it, might this work kind extra of thing, fast. Like, some people yeah. suggest that they might work extra fast to protect their work. Someone asks, Barbara asks a great question that I actually can't answer. How long will Strauss be allowed to stay in the job? I have looked at the statutes. I've consulted with really smart people. I've consulted with one law professor who thinks that his, his legal analysis is that she can't be touched for 210 days. I've talked to other people who are closer to the situation. 
as you might imagine, who think that you can make a legal argument, that you could put someone else in, even before the 210 days, because there are all these sort of overlapping, interlocking statutes. It's not clear that the Vacancies Reform Act even applies here. It's a mishmash of law and statute and regulation, and it's not clear. But given the lack of clarity there, I think it's very important, and we've talked about this, that you know people who are in a position of political power, maybe in the Senate or in the House, get some assurances from the Justice Department that Audrey Strauss will be allowed to stay. I think in the immediate future, she's secure, yeah. but I don't know what happens after that. Yeah, and that could be part of the behind-the-scenes conversation. Nobody's going to be confirmed before the election. Um, the president could nominate someone, but it wouldn't be until after the election. And obviously, if the president wins, that would be valid. And if the president loses, it would not be. Here's two questions in a row I can't. So if someone at Tom is asking, DOJ released a statement about Zelensky testifying a little while ago. I haven't seen the statement. I haven't seen it yet either. Tom, if you have a quote Sorry, Tom. and you want to put yeah. you want to you want to throw it up, maybe we can respond. I imagine it's a negative I imagine it's a negative statement, which is also bizarre if it is a negative statement about someone who is still in the employ of the department. I've actually never seen anything like that. Yeah, it's all very strange. And by the way, there's there's some other questions that I think are pretty interesting about Graham and the blue sheet question, which is that the, the senators from yeah. the blue the blue sheet the <laughs> the, blue, the <laughs> The blue, the blue slip. <laughs> the blue slip, sorry. It's been a while. We it were, blue sheet. As people yeah. may know, and we have maybe newcomers, Anne and I became BFFs in the Senate dealing with the blue slip on a weekly basis. Actually, the first day I started in the Senate, I had a blue slip in my desk that was being held by my the senator I worked for um, on a judicial John nomination. Corzine. Be- John Corzine was holding the blue slip of a, a federal judge nominee because the White House had promised a package of judges. They had then tried to push through a single judge, and Corzine had said no. Um, and so the tradition is that the home state senators sign off on judicial nominations and on um, district court nominations now, but that they sign off on those and on U.S. attorneys. To me, Graham, Graham has not found a spine, Lindsey Graham, and that this is really sorry, all ha- about Has the found fact- a spine? Has not has found not a spine. This, right. is, this is all about yeah. that there are Democratic presidents and that the Republican senators would essentially be giving up any say over the U.S. attorney. Right. And Which they we just don't explain quickly that. for people who don't know? So typically speaking, with respect to certain nominations that are made by the president, you know, the White House, the local senators, the two senators of any state from which the nominee comes, and it's literally a blue slip. It's on, it's it's blue, on blue, yeah. blue paper. And the senator signs and says... You know, I'm okay with the nomination. It doesn't mean they have to vote for the nominee. It doesn't mean they approve of the nominee or they love the nominee. But they procedurally are okay with the nomination going forward. And typically it's been the case in the Judiciary Committee that a chairman will not let a nomination proceed if one of the two senators does not return the blue slip. So the two blue slips come back. They can schedule a hearing for the nominee, whether it's for the district court or the U.S. attorney or whatever else. And that has been a time – you know, you can say that's a – it's a little bit crazy – uh, one might argue, to give so much power to local senators. It's a, it's a matter of respect and tradition. That has been respected still because, as you say, what goes around comes around. The way in which it's not been respected in recent times is with respect to a circuit court nominee. Remember, a circuit court covers uh, many jurisdictions and often many states. And I think this this happened for the first time under McConnell, but I haven't looked at it recently. They will proceed on a circuit court nominee even if all the relevant senators from the states do not return a blue slip. But a senator has the ability, whether it's a Democrat in the Republican administration or vice versa, to stop the nomination. One senator 
to stop the nomination of someone from becoming a district court judge or U.S. attorney. And so I, I agree with you. I think it's something Lindsey Graham knows that the Senate might not be in Republican control next time around. And he's going to want to have the ability to block, in his view, bad nominees in South Carolina, right? Yes, definitely. Anything else about Berman? Anybody else want to talk about Berman? Let's see. Should we move on? Let's move on. Today is the publication date for reasons that are not clear to me, but, you know, I, I can plug the book again. So I wrote this book, and all books, for some reason, in America come out on a Tuesday, and today's Tuesday. Today is the publication date of John Bolton's book, in the, the room where it happened. So there are a lot of objections people have to the book. I think the, the most poignant objection is that he stole his title from uh, yeah. the song of Lin-Manuel Lin Miranda from Hamilton. You probably have a more substantive critique. Uh, no, I, that, I, right? I agree on the title. The first time I heard it, I was like, oof. Um, I've also uh, read a bunch of criticisms of, of the sort of 500-plus pages of writing. I mean, look. The, boring, the right? People me, say boring. Yeah. I, you know, what's so interesting about Bolton, and I think, you know, obviously this whole debate is framed by the fact that he was asked to testify during the president's impeachment. He had incredibly relevant knowledge. He now confirms in the book the efforts to get Ukraine um, to basically provide information on on the Bidens. And so, you know, he should have come forward and he didn't. And his he played this game with, I need to be subpoenaed. Obviously, he didn't come forward until it was with the Senate. The Senate is Republican run. They were not going to um, issue those subpoenas. And so it really is, it's like a fake argument of I was willing to testify. It just, it feels so like false and just like yeah. obviously Although like, he has said, game playing. Apparently he's been doing these interviews and he has said, look, you know, I don't know why folks withdrew the subpoena. I just wanted, you know, the court to sort of weigh in on this. We have a, we have a non-substantive question about Bolton. I have some th other things to say about Bolton, too. So this is the one quick non-substantive question, because that's, that's pretty much how I'm, how I'm feeling at the moment. Um, Isabel from Floral Park, New York, asks to you and me, will you pay for Bolton's book or take it out from the library to keep him from profiting? That's my plan. I, yeah, I agree with you. I will not pay for his book. And in fact, I, I mean, I have a big stack of books, even though I do not display them. I have a big stack of books to read. It's hard for me to um, think that I'll get through all 500 pages of that, but I would, you know, yeah, I'm not paying for it. By the way, I mean, the one thing I think that John Bolton's book proves is that he and Donald Trump deserve one another. And I want to give you my argument for yeah, why please. that is, if I can. Okay. They're, they're so, both terrible in different, terrible. <laughs> in different complementary different ways. ways. But what here's what's interesting. They kind of also play ball the same way. So Donald Trump gets subpoenaed. The administration gets subpoenaed by Congress. And they basically just say, no, we decide. Like, it doesn't matter whether or not you have a lawful claim. We're deciding. We're not going to do it. And John Bolton is in the middle of the preclearance review for classified information on his book. And then he just decides, like, you know, forget it. I don't I don't play by your rules. I play by my own rules. I'm going to put the book out. And so, like, it's kind of a very Trumpian move to basically say, like, I don't report to you. It just feels to me like two peas in a pod. Um, so there are two issues, right? That. One is whether or not it would, permit it, it would be permitted to be published. And the other is whether he can profit from it. So on the first... You know, there's some fault on the part of the administration, right? They they kind of, I think, understood. I think they couldn't do much about it because they moved very late. They've known about this book for a long time. On the other hand, John Bolton knows how it works. You know, my book, have I mentioned my book today? 
this one. <laughs> it's a big book. It's a big <laughs> doing justice book. It's very, and in fact, very patriotic. I have like three copies. I don't have them here though. You, Otherwise, you, I you were featured out. in the in the book, Anne Milgram. Um, I put it through pre-publication review, even though I had nothing even remotely classified in it. But I think you do it because I used to have, you know, obviously the highest security clearance you can have. And I don't know what I would have done if they decided to screw with me, which you always have some concern about that, but it's supposed to be a very sort of professional process. But I got my letter back in the 30 days saying, you know, we see nothing here that's classified or problematic. And it was intended not to be that kind of book. John Bolton, you know, people who are supportive of him say, well, the career person who first reviewed the book said, I see nothing classified here. And then it it went through a further review by someone higher up. Who people are criticizing? Who had not been trained? Who had not been trained not been in trained. Pre- pre-clearance? So it does smell but the fishy. Way, but, but the problem is with everything this administration does. If if you could trust their good faith, it happens. I've seen a lot of authors um, who have been in the intelligence community say it didn't take thirty days. It took a number of months, and they didn't think they were being screwed with. They just had differences of opinion about what was you know top secret or SCI or whatever, and they would take stuff out. The problems with this administration, you just can't know. But John Bolton undertook a risk. When he decided, screw it, I'm going to publish, even though I didn't get that final letter, the kind of letter that I got and so many other, other authors get. And I, th- I don't know what you think. It sounds like the judge has said there's a real possibility that he will never profit from it. In some ways, that's maybe the best possible result. Everyone gets the critique. Right. Bolton doesn't I, make a dollar. I, right. Right. And, you know, he got a $2 million advance. And look, part of why he got that advance is that he was pushing hard to get it out it, it, to sell it before the election, right? And so there's no question that it, it wasn't that, you know, and look, probably the administration would have approved it the day after the election. They might, if they were, if this was political, they would have been holding it for that. What I think is, you know, and we talked about this the other day, but it feels to me like, you know, it's a legitimate thing for John Bolton to say, you're playing politics with this, this needs to be approved. And then to sue them, um, to sort of push their hand a little, to to sort of just go out and release things without getting sign off. And he was, you know, a very senior intelligence official in the administration. It just it doesn't feel right to have done it like that. But you know, again, I don't discount that there are politics being played. Hey, um, so through the miracle of technology, our wonderful team has found the DOJ statement on Zelensky. So let's just go back to that for one second. I'm going to put you on the spot like they sometimes do on CNN where they, re- like it happened to me on Friday. They were reading Jeff Berman's statement about, you know, being defiant. And I didn't have a chance to like call smarter people and say, what, is this, what does this mean? So the attorney general determined, blah, 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 blah. Mr. Notably, Mr. Zelensky, a line prosecutor, did not have any discussion with the attorney general, the U.S. attorney, or any other member of political leadership at the department about the sentencing. Instead... Mr. Zelensky's allegations concerning the U.S. attorney's motivation are based on his own interpretation of events and hearsay at best, not firsthand knowledge. So it sounds like they're going the route of one of the observations I was making earlier. I heard that. I was told that. I mean, I hope and trust that that was just for his written statement. Tomorrow, when he's asked more pointed questions by the committee, he will say... What do you think? Right, but there, there is like they're they're playing what I think is a very dangerous game. So we we already talked about, it, but just to play it out a little, he goes in, he testifies, and says, you know, Preet and Anne were my supervisors. They each told me that this was coming from above, that there was politics at play, that Stone is a friend of Trump's. Then the committee has to has to subpoena Preet and Anne to come forward. And the question is, what do Preet and Anne say under oath? And so DOJ is gambling that the supervisors are not going to say that, or or they're playing a game because 
Barr and his people are saying, we didn't talk to the immediate supervisors of Aaron Zelensky. We only talked to Shea, who was the acting U.S. attorney, or to Jesse Liu. Um, but it's a dangerous game because you're you're basically saying no one's going to come forward and speak what I suspect is probably the truth, um, that there was political influence at play. And so this is going to un- unravel, I think, or, or come, come out. We're going to see more of it. But by the way, it's always an interesting defense when you say it's secondhand, it's thirdhand, and you don't just say it's not true. Right. right, like the best of the best argument is to basically be like Stone I mean, shouldn't have right. been prosecuted. Like, you know, it is right because the facts speak for themselves. Like, it's not just Stone; you also have Flynn, and I just think it's interesting that this person is testifying. He's being allowed to testify. They're criticizing him. You know, an employee of the department. I mean, I need to think about it a little bit more, but I, it's hard to get my head around that. I mean, when I investigated the, the firings of U.S. attorneys. Ironically, in 2007, 13 years ago, the department really hammered them. In the middle of the hearing, they put out statements talking about disgruntled employees, but they were former employees. There is generally a policy in institutions, the Justice Department and, and other institutions, right, that you don't take the hammer to a person who is still in your employ. Uh, or you avoid Look, I've that. I've talked somehow. to DOJ lawyers, I'm sure you have as well, but the morale in that institution right now is rock bottom. And, you know, the fact that they're willing to take the hammer to existing lawyers who are very well regarded, um, you know, it just it sort of deepens that feeling. And look, I personally think you and I've talked about this a little bit offline, but I personally think that the next AG is going to have an incredibly difficult job um, to basically rebuild just the institution and trust in the rule of law. Um, So I think it's, you know, this is one thing we should say about Everything we've said, I think, supports the idea that whatever you think of Aaron Zelensky, it's kind of a brave and courageous thing to do. Like, it's hard to come forward yes. and, say, and say the truth that will cause you to be vilified, perhaps retaliated against, um, spoken ill about. When you're outside the, the, you know, the institution and you've gone and you've moved on, so I think he's, I think he's a brave guy. And we'll see I what agree. happens. I'm worried he's going to get, you know punched in the head verbally by the Republicans, but you know, you and I will be talking about it, you and I will be talking about it next week. Here's a question about Bolton that we got, and we can move on to the Supreme Court. Margaret, in Evanston, Illinois, great town. Do you expect Congress to follow up on the allegations in John Bolton's book? So Jerry Nadler said something about this. What do you think? You know, I mean it, it in some ways they should, but it's it's also very hard at this point, right? Like, they've gone through impeachment, the president was impeached and then acquitted, and so it feels like at this moment in time it's really hard to go back, but it also feels really bad to let this go, particularly, the, you know, the allegations that Trump was trying to influence um, the Chinese president to get him to buy soybeans so that, you know, Trump would do better with farmers and would win the election. And that, you know, someone who saw an unredacted copy of the, of the manuscript basically said that Trump said, you know, it will help us win. We want to win. Um, and it's just, you know, that, that sort of shameless, um, politics over, um, what's best for the country. I mean, I think it's really important to have a conversation, but I sort of feel like that chip, I don't know if you disagree, but I sort of feel like that ship has sailed in some ways. Um, and there's a clock. The problem is there's, There's a clock, right? And it's the height of richness for a guy like John Bolton to say that the House committed malpractice, you know, impeachment malpractice because they didn't pursue certain things that he was in a position to talk about. 
Right. And, and remember, I, I think one of the reasons that, that Mueller disbanded the office and put out his report when he put it out was he was looking at that clock and he thought there was a political clock and I want to be, I want to be out of business and not have anything to do with this way in advance of the election. And you know, I think we actually talked about this, the idea that what would happen if Donald Trump does other impeachable stuff or there's a discovery of other impeachable stuff on the eve of the election? You know, you can't really do anything about it. And they look kind of feckless. I feel a little bit bad for them. They look kind of feckless in the face of other evidence, not doing anything. But at the same time, what, what are they going to do on the eve of the election? And by the way, having already tried and failed in their attempt, right? So it's kind of yeah, not, it's very tough. not a good position to be in. But I do think, for what it's worth, the hearings for Barr and for the Department of Justice are essential. And, you know, this conversation has to be had publicly and has not been had yet in the same way that, you know, if you get congressional, the ability to subpoena people, you just get, it's just a different conversation than all of us are having um, outside think the House, of that forum. Do you think, since we're just among friends, um, yeah. just a few hundred close just us. Few hundred, few hundred close friends um, who won't tell anyone what we're talking about, do you think that the House committee is capable of handling this in the best way? You know, it's an interesting question. I miss, I I miss mean, Adam Schiff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know, right? And I think that I hope they are because I think, you know, if there's anything we've seen, it will take really, this is a fight. And even this conversation tomorrow has to be done well. And I would like them to see to see them use litigators, people who know how to ask all the follow-up questions. And I agree with your read on the statement, which is that there's a lot of questions I would like to have answered. Um, and let's so, go down there tomorrow. Let's go. Let's go. Um, we'll get a Winnebago. Yes. We'll go down. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an open question as to whether or not they can be effective. Um, and they have to be effective because otherwise, you know, Congress loses credibility to ask these questions. And I think a lot of people are reasonably asking, like, why are you firing you know, someone who has, look, they thought he was competent. They are willing to put him in the civil division or the SEC. And so um, that and then the stone piece as well, I think, is, you know, has to be answered for. All right. Before we get all heavy and go to the Supreme Court, which we got to talk about. Yeah, we got to do the Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. But can we do something? Let's see. Does anybody have a lighter question? Oh, here's one. Emmett from McKinney, Texas. If you're from Texas, I hope you're social distancing. And you're wearing your mask. It's not good. It's not good. Definitely. Um, he asks, favorite board game? <laughs> oh, it's a great question. I don't know. Is Corkle probably, a board game? You probably game? play Does board that... games with your son, right? My kids are, are not into that anymore. Yeah, but our little guy, like, he's kind of into um. He loves Clue. We play Clue Junior. Oh. He loves Clue Junior. I didn't know it's that great. was still a thing. Well, you know, in Clue Junior, there's no murder. Somebody uh, Colonel stole... Mustard did it in the... Was it stealing yeah, of penguins? Is it stealing of penguins? No, it's a it's a it's a room with a drink um, and eating the cookies. Who ate the cookies? It's a very it's who pressing ate the question. Cookies? Who ate the cookies? It's adorable, but it's just like Clue. But Is no it, one do does. They have a little envelope, <laughs> and you and you put the cards in the envelope. Yeah, it's pretty great. But we also play a lot of Quirkle. I don't, we didn't have that when I was I have a kid. No idea what um, that is. I don't know what that it's is. It's not exactly a board game, but it's very it's very fun. You make patterns. So um, when I was growing, what about played, in your house? So yeah. so no board games. We used to play a lot of board games. Um, my kids are a little older. Growing up, I played. I didn't realize why we did. There's a game Parcheesi, which, oh, is, a, Parcheesi. which is kind of a stupid game because there's not a lot of strategy involved. I be, I was told by my parents. I've never researched this, and one of the hundreds of people I'm sure will um, confirm this. I think it's a board game that was invented in India. 
I think oh, Parcheesi. Parcheesi. Oh, Parcheesi. wow. We- My favorite board game, though, although it took like nine hours to play, uh, other than Monopoly, uh, was Stratego. Do you remember that game? Oh, yeah. That's a great game. I loved, I loved this. I played that up and up through college. You know what we do a lot of? We do a lot of puzzles now, too. Chad loves Stratego. Yeah. And, and Jeffrey Caitlin says, that- I've heard that, too, about Parcheesi. That's not really definitive, Caitlin. I'm sorry. <laughs> the fact that, like, you've heard it, too. Like, what, are you going to testify in the house tomorrow? I heard Risk that is another. Someone just threw out Risk. Risk is a great, <laughs> is a great one. So I never really, I never really... Oh, I we just really got played. Catan Jr. Actually, someone just wrote in about Catan Jr. We just got it. We haven't read it. We haven't played it yet. Oh, and we chess. do, however. I love chess. chess. Is, it, is that considered a board game, or is that sort of some special category? I don't know. No, that's a board game. That's a board game. Oh, I will say, like, Chinese checkers. All... Oh, yeah, we had those, too. My parents still have it at their house. They and keep my, trying to give my it to me. My favorite game. I don't, no, is, it a, is the following a board game? Let's have people weigh in. Connect Four. It's not really not a, board a board game. game it's not a board but it's game. a great game. I think. I don't know. No, everyone's, everyone's like, no. Everybody's like, no, no, no. no. You're an idiot. Sign off. <laughs> we, there's a lot of risk, actually. And a you lot guys of are very opinionated. I don't know, if, I don't know if, if you guys are too opinionated or not. I like it. Oh, Bananagrams is also, my sister likes it so much she's given it to us twice. And Quirkle, she's given it to us twice because she likes it so oh, much. Someone said, is Bruce represented on your shelf? Yeah, he is. But um, I'll, next time... Yes, his book is somewhere. His book is somewhere. I'm sorry. <laughs> and he's also I just want to see flowers. Bruce is also next represented time. you can't see it. He's also represented on a large a large framed photograph. It's like three feet by three feet. And more importantly, he's represented in my heart. <laughs> Did so, you spit out your drink? That, <laughs> all right. All Almost. Right. But I feel I feel the same. I love Bruce. Okay. Um, I do have here, and next time I will put up behind me, I do have um one of the great uh, government from New Jersey posters that says another perfect day in New Jersey and it's a picture of the beach the shore oh did we, so, talk, did we talk about the fact that the that the official state of New Jersey uh, Twitter feed is really good it's excellent you should follow them do you know follow what Jersey. the official state of New Jersey um, now we're going a little bit obscure but do you yeah. know you know how every state you're trying to avoid talking about attorney. SCOTUS I know no I'm ready to go SCOTUS I have a lot to say on this although we won't have that much time but um, do you know how every state at the there's a federal there's a training place for federal prosecutors called the National Advocacy Center um, it's been nicknamed by the AUSAs it's called the NAC it's in been South nicknamed Carolina. by the Yes, it's been nicknamed the snack because they basically feed you twenty four seven. But barbecue food, USA, fried food. There's a lot of food, a lot of classes, and a lot of food. Every U.S. attorney can send in a picture from their home state. Do you know what the New Jersey one is? There? I don't. I have no idea. Well, it's interesting because I was there when I was at DOJ, and I actually complained, and I was I didn't realize that it was sent by the U.S. attorney. You're one of those. But I was, I was looking all over for it, and Montana has these beautiful pictures, and like Florida has beautiful pictures, and then in the bar by the pool table oh, is right right over it says "Yo, welcome to Jersey," and it's a picture from The Sopranos. Uh, so I said to the guy, I think it was Mike Bailey at the time, the guy who was in charge of the knack, like, "What are you doing? Like, that's not you know, we've like the most beautiful <laughs> beaches in the world," and he's like. That's what your U.S. attorney sent me. So Chris Christie had sent him the um, he did? Yo, Welcome to Jersey Soprano picture. Yeah. I don't know what everyone's going to do with that. <laughs> That's not, I don't want to talk about but Chris yes, Christie. But I do, not, I do not have the Sopranos picture here. I only have the Jersey Shore. I don't want to talk about it. So, okay, so let's talk about the Supreme Court of the United States of America. 
So two decisions last week, one having to do with discrimination uh, against um, the LGBTQ community, and the other having to do with DACA, uh, which I guess we didn't get a chance to talk about because we were off last week. The, the funniest thing that someone said to me about, that I saw people saying about the first decision, which I think most people on this call would appreciate and be in favor of, because it outlawed discrimination against members of that community, was, uh, is this a joke? I, I, I've forgotten how to process good news. <laughs> There's so little good news, I don't even know how to think about this good thing. 6-3 six, six, opinion, right? John Roberts siding with the liberals and the opinion written by Neil Gorsuch. Are you, were you stunned by it? Yeah, I mean, I... <sighs> Yes. I mean, I think I think what most people would say is that they felt like and so this this whole question falls under the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and which prohibits discrimination based on race, national origin and gender and sex is what it says because of sex. And so this question is, can you fire someone because they're gay or transgender? And does that constitute sex under the meaning of the statute? And so I think, look, there has not been a big uh a big decision by the Supreme Court on this since Kennedy was on the Supreme Court. And it was fair with the shift in the justices, particularly under President Trump, to to really, I think, believe that it was possible that um, the Supreme Court was going to say that it's okay to fire people for being gay. And it feels so crazy to say that. But if you'd asked me, I would have told you I didn't know what the Supreme Court was going to do and that it was possible we were going to get a bad decision. I totally agree with the decision. I think it is 100% right that um, obviously you should not be fired because of your sexual orientation. And so what is interesting, though, and I think the chief justice and like my big takeaway from this week is how savvy he is in many ways. You know, not only he and Gorsuch both join it, they basically say like this, this include this is included. And they're also a little a little um Gorsuch is a little cute in that he says, I'm just speaking to termination. I'm not speaking to whether you can put these other restrictions, right? And so I think we should watch for a lot of litigation around other restrictions, not firing people, but, um, you know, other restrictions on people's employment. But what's really interesting is that the chief justice, whoever's in, when the chief justice is in the majority, he assigns who writes the opinion, right? And so here he assigned it to Gorsuch, who is one of the arch conservatives of the court. Yeah. And so he writes the majority. Him, Eliza yeah. uh, comments, uh, now it's scrolled up, you know, I don't believe that Gorsuch and Roberts are leaning to the left. I agree. People should understand that, 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 that this, uh, this opinion from last week is not about the Constitution. It's not about a protected right in the structure or language of the Constitution that says you can't discriminate in this way. It's a narrow decision based on what does it mean to not be able to discriminate on the, on the basis of sex. And some of the conservatives and other people who are against this view of taking the position, well, the statute says race, national origin, sex. It doesn't say sexual orientation or gender identity, etc. And just, if I could take a minute for people to understand how Gorsuch looked at this, he said, look, it's, it's not the orientation of the person that he was focused on, as I understand the decision. He's like, look, the conduct of people, if you have a person who engages in, in sexual conduct with a woman... Um, or is attracted to a woman, and you have two people who feel that way at your, at your company. You have a man who's attracted to a woman or engages in sex with a woman, and you have a woman who's engaged in sex with a woman. You're only upset if you're discriminating this way with the, the woman who's engaging in that conduct with a woman. So necessarily, that is discrimination based on sex, right? 
So the way he thought about it, and the way I think that's right to think about it, but you can't draw too many conclusions from it about how he's going to think about other things, his interpretation of what it means to discriminate on the basis of sex is wrapped up in how it is that an employer would say, a male who does this is okay, a female who does this is not okay, and so that's on the basis of sex. It's a tremendously important decision. It'll make a lot of people's lives better and protect them. But I agree with the people who say, I wouldn't predict too much in the future about Gorsuch becoming, you know, a, a bona fide liberal. A hundred percent. He is he is not a liberal at all. And this is I agree with you. This is one of the decisions that um, I think is right and should be that way. And, you know, yeah, but it, it didn't necessarily it wasn't a foregone conclusion. It was going to come out this way. But it I agree with you completely. And it's pretty narrow. It is very narrowly drawn. And so is the DACA decision, which we should also talk about. So a few days later, another good decision, 5-4. What'd you make of that? So again, I think, you know, the Chief Justice is is very clever. It's the Chief Justice and the Ford Liberal Justice. Is, is he clever court. or is he also do you think he's annoyed? Do you think he's pissed off? So at it's the interesting. Trump I mean, yeah, uh, yes. Um, and it's essentially a finding that the administration did not follow the Administrative Procedures Act when they basically made this change and they decided that they would cut DACA, um, which, of course, protects the 700,000 DREAMers, um, the kids in the United States, and basically says that they, they couldn't be deported for a period of years. And so what he says, and what I actually find incredibly troubling, is that the other four justices, the conservative wing of the court, were fine with just sort of saying, you don't need a reason, I guess. But what, what Roberts basically says is under the APA, you it can't be arbitrary and capricious. You can't just walk in one day and be like, I'm cutting this rule, I'm cutting this rule or I'm changing this rule. It has to be a reasoned decision and you have to be able to support that it's a you know a legitimate reason and basis and that the administration just failed completely here to do that. And so Roberts, it's very narrow. It basically means that um, and it's clever, he also basically sort of leaves on the table um, the ability to restrict some critical parts of what DACA has offered, including employment. And so it is by no by no means it's it's sort of a delay on the outcome of this. It's not it's not the final word because the administration can now go back, make a reasoned argument for why they want to change DACA. And I think, you know, potentially get if if they follow Robert's, you know, instructions, then they're gonna have the other four Republican justices ready to sign on. They would sign on today all people need to do is sort of, you know, follow the APA. And so it's a decent decision right now, but it is in no way the end of this conversation, in my view. But it points to an endemic problem with this administration. You and I have talked about this many times. It's like the pretextual presidency, right? In so many different ways. We talked about it already with Jeff Berman. There are ways to have your way with respect to personnel or policy, right? But they have to be true. That's how you don't get into trouble. You don't say, well... I want to give Jay Clayton a job, my golfing buddy, and that's the reason. That's not the reason, right? And with respect to legal issues in the court, there was a case last year about the census, right? And yeah, they've lost they a ton to of cases the, they on They want to ask this, add a citizenship question, and they said, we need to add the citizenship question because it will help us to enforce the Voting Rights Act, which in 91 different ways was just not right because they tried to come up with a, a, you know, a good faith gloss on why they wanted to do something and at the end of the day, courts are starting to appreciate, look, you actually do have a lot of authority. You know, the executive branch has a lot of discretion to do a lot of different things and a lot of power, but you can't make up the reason why you're doing it. Like, it goes back to the firing of Jim Comey, which again, you know, 
you can have an agreement or disagreement with the decision, but it proceeded from a complete pretext, right? Rod Rosenstein wrote that memo that said, you know, Jim Comey is fireable because he didn't treat Hillary Clinton well. If anybody in the world thinks that's the reason why Trump fired Jim Comey, there's like three bridges that I could sell them, right? Um, and this is an example of that. And, and I do think, you know, smarter commentators about the court, I agree with them, who are like, look, John Roberts is, feels a little bit burned from earlier cases. And if you're going to do something, you have to be truthful about your reasons, right? Again, it's not, it's, it's not so much of a swing to the left with respect to Roberts here. It's about I agree. just being, it's about basic honesty in why you're doing certain things, right? Yeah, he had that great quote about, you know, make square turns when it comes to the Ameri- to the public, right? And basically, like, you got to be straightforward and do it correctly. Um, and basically, he's saying you can do it, you just have to do it correctly. And so, you know, I, I think he- they will not get this through before the election, is my personal view, to get the APA rules, rulemaking sort of piece and to get this foundation to overturn DACA. If Trump wins election, they will absolutely do this, in my view. If he does not win election, then... Um, I think, you know, the conversation can be can change. But this is an absolute example of something we've seen a lot, particularly in environmental cases, the census case, where they have just literally not adhered to any of the rules around um, how do you make regulations? How, do the, how does the executive branch act? They've just literally tried to, like, push through whatever they want to push through. And the courts have generally rejected, rejected that pretty overwhelmingly. We got more decisions coming up. We're awaiting yeah. the decision on the documents, the president's documents. Do you have a prediction? Oh no, I, I can't wait to <laughs> I can't wait to hear that though. Um, look, I thought that Manhattan DA's lawyer did a great job arguing it. Um, we'll see, but uh, yeah, I'm very curious to see that. As some people are pointing out in the chat, you know, a little bit we're 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 saved. You know, if you have the point of view that we have on some of these issues, we're saved by the fact that a lot of the lawyers arguing are kind of incompetent. And they're not yeah, doing a great I mean, job, and they're kind of lazy in their arguments. Look, I worry all the time, like, what if this, um, you know, what if, like, the president isn't actually, like, the worst example of this, but this is a test for all of us in our sort of civic democracy? Um, because, yeah, I mean, he's sloppy. I mean, this is, this was, you know, any good lawyer would say you can't do it this way. Um, you're not going to pass judicial muster, or you shouldn't pass judicial muster. Um, and so... What else do you want to talk about? So we started late. So I guess we should go for another few minutes to give people. Yeah. To give people. Any, let me look at. Let me look at there. Any other good? I'm looking um, at the chats. Now's your time. We're running out of time, guys. So, a f- couple more questions. Wow. They're, now they're coming in. Now they're coming in really fast. What are you watching? Should we update folks on what we're watching? So I started watching. Yeah. Watch. <laughs> I started watching Watchmen. Uh, on on Juneteenth, actually, which I've, I'm finding excellent. Also, it's going to places that I don't fully I don't fully understand. Watchmen is amazing. I, I, I started it. watching Fauda, but then What's I Fauda? stopped. I don't know. Fauda is um, Fauda is excellent, as people are saying. It's set in Israel and a lot of with the Arab-Israeli conflict and dealing with um, terrorism in that part of the world. But it's all subtitles, and the problem for me when everything is subtitles. Now people are going to it makes much, you go to sleep at well, night. It's not that like I I multitask. Like sometimes I'm texting I'm texting you Anne while I'm watching a show, and if I can listen to it, that's fine. But every time I look down, and I also need to see like if Trump is anything crazy. 
if you're looking down at your phone while you're trying to watch the show, you can't do you, it. You can't. You can't do it. Although I watched Narcos, I think since last um, we met, which is some subtitles and a lot of English. Narcos, I think, is excellent. Pablo Escobar. What are you watching? Someone just recommended a show to me, and I mentioned it to someone who told me it was the best show they've watched this year, and now I can't remember the name. That is the most <laughs> so unhelpful thing you've ever said. I know, I know. I can tell you <laughs> what I'm watching. You're very I know. helpful. I'm, I'm going to find I'm gonna Fleabag, find it. Because I've seen it, Fleabag. Was it like High Some, Fidelity or something? No, I, I'm not, I don't remember. We have remember. a lot of Fleabag. It, what does that say about our listenership? Um, <laughs> so I we've been watching um, the latest season of Bosch. Um, oh, I have not seen that. Sort of detective show. It's fun. Unorthodox, um, I watched a lot of subtitles. But I watched Unorthodox. Uh, there's yeah, Bosch. Somebody's given up for Bosch. Um, I will also say that I, uh, you know, I don't have as I read and I fall asleep. <laughs> so I I do not feel that I've been taking as much advantage of the um, pandemic binge watching as I should be. Homeland. Um, are, are you still? So I I kind of I kind of stopped. It's over, home. right? Yeah, we stopped. We it, stopped a before couple it got of seasons to the end. ago. Is that bad? Are we bad people if if we stop watching Homeland? No, I feel like I need to write down all these um all these recommendations though, so I have my list. A lot of times we'll be like, "What should we watch now?" And you know, we'd have no idea. Oh, oh Taste the, the new Perry Mason. That... So the new Perry oh, Mason I watch it. was yeah. on in the background, and it was like I thought I wasn't sure what it was, and all I saw was like lots of people dying. <laughs> I don't remember the original oh, Perry really? Mason. I, I I saw a lot of death. The original. Uh, the original on Perry, on Mason the, the Perry Mason was not Mason. about that. I used to watch it with my grandma, so. and in fact, I bet a lot of. Um, I wonder how many lawyers went to law school because of Perry Mason or L.A. Law or right. you know all the, the subsequent. Someone asked, yeah. whose name I can't pronounce because it's seven. Oh, it's just a number. How realistic is? Oh, Jillian's? money heist! Money heist! Someone just said chat. Uh, someone just said money heist. That's the show someone recommended to oh, me. I don't know that. Oh, show. thank God for you can guys. You, can you so, text that to me later so I remember? Because I will. I'm I will. Busy. But I'm someone busy said doing it was a, like a live podcast right now. Can't write money it down. heist. That's it. Uh, and that's Mary. Thank you, Mary. Whew. All right. So we're coming close <laughs> to the end. Do you, do you have any words of wisdom for? You know, a lot of folks have asked about elections, and I think yeah. we're going to have to spend some time and some of the insiders talking about it. By the way, there, was a, there were elections, the primaries in lots of today? states today. In New York. Yeah. Uh, not New Jersey. Yep. Um, I voted. Three members of my family voted. Uh, only the people who were over the age of 18 voted in my family. Uh, we have a big DA like race. That you ha- I like that you had to qualify that. Well, so, like, you know, all, all of us were thinking, about, oh, did you have your six-year-old vote? voter fraud, and so we don't, yeah. we don't do that. We only vote legit. Um, and I'm not going to generally talk about, you know, my voting decisions, but very important race, Westchester DA. Oh, definitely. My friend and former colleague, Mimi Roca, running in the also, primary. Also there. my friend and someone I love. Yeah, our friend. Yeah. Um, so I, I was texting with her. I think she got a lot of support. We'll see what happens. It's it's hard to unseat an incumbent, yeah, but that's much, an important job. And um, and Kentucky, I think there were some problems with polling in Kentucky, right? Yeah, you know, I I heard a minister speaking yesterday and talking about how um, you know in some of the most crowded polling districts in Kentucky, there was just one polling place that's open, right? And and just sort of you know efforts to suppress the vote. And you know what he basically was saying to 
his folks was basically like, look, people have died for the right to vote. Get out there. If you have to stand for 15 hours, stand for 15 hours. It was really compelling to me to hear him talk about it. But I really ultimately believe, like, how is it possible that we're living in a country in 2020 where that's happening? And so, you know, I hope that the lawyers get out. I hope that, you know, I, I understand if you have to wait 15 hours, you will, um, because it, it matters well, so greatly right now, but no I one have. should so, have to. So there's yeah. that concern. And the foundation that we've talked about this, the foundation that Trump is laying very, very strongly, that whatever the outcome is, it's a fraud and it's not legit. And we're going to be stuck with some some very bad vibes and comments and maybe conduct by the president. Because I hope and believe he'll be decisively defeated in November. But what's that going to look like, especially when you're going to have all sorts of suppression going on and maybe not a final tally because in all likelihood, many, many millions of people will be voting by absentee ballot and you may not know the results. Just imagine we don't know the results that night and think of what kind of turmoil we're going to be in until we know. Can I bring this back to Bill Barr where we started, which is, here's my fear. Look, I mean, I think Barr is going to get pressure from the hearings this week. There's there's pressure on him. Lots of people are calling for his resignation, but I don't think the president will let go of him because I feel like DOJ oversees the voting rights section. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, the president is going to want Bill Barr in the Department of Justice when the election comes in November. And I worry a lot about the integrity of those decisions. And so, you know, I did, a, I did election work um in uh, for the Corzine election, I think it was 2005, 2006. And, you know, it's a real thing, even in states that have good laws, like it's a real thing on on sort of voting rights. And so we are really far in this country from where we need to be. Okay, I think I think I think we're I think we've gone over. I think so, too. But it's so nice to see you. And it's so nice to see see everybody's great. um, It kind of got darker. It kind of got darker where you are. Well, you know, my light also, I was showing, I was showing you my $20 Amazon light that has um, totally faded. Apparently, it doesn't last an hour. So, and it also got darker outside. So vote. Don't forget to vote. Let us know your thoughts. It, I, there's so many comments coming. It's, it's really hard to, it's really I, what hard I think to keep up. What I think we should do is like, what I think we should do, like a lot of people asked about the voice of, of America. Like there's a lot that I sort of have been taking notes on that we can think about following up on in a, in a later Cafe Insider yeah. email, um, email, episode. Email us. Let us know what you, th- you thought about this. This is kind of, this is Yeah, we of, love your emails. Fun. Thank this you. And your notes. Yeah. Um, welcome to my house. And cheers. Welcome to, yeah, cheers. I didn't even finish. I didn't even finish this one drink. You downed yours. No comment. <laughs> All right, we'll be, we'll be back next week. Um, I don't have to clean up next week because it's going to be pure audio, which, you know, has its benefits. Great. Thanks, guys. I'll see you soon. We love you. Take Bye. care. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much for joining. That's it for this week's Insider Podcast. Your hosts are Preet Bharara and Ann Milgram. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Calvin Lord, Noah Azulai, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. Thank you for being a part of the Cafe Insider community. 